0: This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, well now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord and Master of my life, deliver me from the spirit of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk. Bestow upon me your servant the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, grant that I may be aware of my own sins, and not to judge my brother, for thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome back, all of our SGRs here at the ICC. What do we always, uh, what do you call that when you have the letters for the Lint?
1: Oh, yeah, the SGRs. Yeah, Yeah,
0: but you know, it's like uh, an
1: uh, like An, an acronym. acronym? No. Yeah. yeah
0: whatever it is that's the right word you know that's the problem i I went i went to catholic school and trust me it was not pretty in the 80s okay (laughs) so anyways whatever it is sgr icc annie mitchell here we go second sunday of our lenten journey
1: indeed give us our biblical passages yes okay so stick with me here Okay. well, uh, oh, no, no,
0: I'm not sticking with you because we're doing it SGR style. Oh no!
1: Well, of course we can do it SGR style. We'll go all the way through, but I just think it's funny. So, can I read what the okay, go ahead. What the lectionary is? I'd actually be interested to know why these verses are taken out, like what the church is trying to tell us with this. But anyway, Genesis <laughs> chapter 22, verses one and two, then the first half of verse nine, then verses ten through thirteen, then verses. 15 through 18. (laughs) The responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 116. The gospel is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10, and the epistle is St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses
0: 31 through 34. There we are.
1: So Genesis, I will turn there in my Bible and not use my lectionary version. Chapter 22.
0: Chapter 20. We're going to do the whole thing. Verse 1 through 18. Yes. All right. 18. Let me flip
1: my page here. That's in the Old
0: Testament, Annie. Genesis.
1: Oh, thank God you told me. Thank you so much. I needed that. Okay, I'm here. Are you there?
0: I'm there. Ready to go. Okay, here we go. After these things. After, after these things. things.
1: Yeah. After these things, God tested Abram, Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only begotten son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains And I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Then Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only begotten son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. I will indeed bless you and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand on which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies and by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves because you have obeyed my voice that is an
0: epic it's, it is story. an epic It is an
1: epic, epic story.
0: There's no possible way we can do a decent exegesis of this text. However, we're going to try, and I'm going to start by just giving you a little, well, helpful tool. And that is that I did a whole study of the life of Abraham here at the Institute of Catholic Culture many moons ago. Oh, look at
1: how young you were.
0: Look at how young I was. Two parts. Of it was actually in person. You see, okay, that was old timey ICC. So that there you go. The journey of faith, a study of the life of Abraham. You can go and take a look at that if you want to spend a little bit more time than we have here today. However, there's lots to cover, so let's get into it.
1: Yes. So I think first of all, just to get our bearings, what was going on in the life of Abraham when God decides to test him in this way?
0: Sure. You know, we call Abraham our father in, in faith, right? Because he is one who is faith-filled. He he leaves his father's home in chapter uh, chapter 11 and 12, and uh, verse 27, verse 31, chapter 12, verse 1, right? There's a calling of Abraham. Abraham's obedient. He goes and follows the will of the Lord. But the story of our father of faith... Is the story of all of us in faith. And that is that it's oftentimes a story of a lack of faith. And Abraham stands certainly in that category throughout this story, in which there's he's struggling. He's struggling to trust in the Lord. And because of that struggle, he oftentimes turns to himself and his own strength, if you will, his own way to fix the problem. And that kind of culminates here in this text mm-hmm. in chapter 22 of Genesis. And, and what is that kind of story? Well, you know that Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees here in chapter 11, verse um, verse 27 and following. Mm-hmm. Um, this is right on the heels of the story of the flood, right? So the, mm-hmm. as far as your kind of Bible stories, right? You've got the creation account. You have the fall then you have the flood narrative. I'm drawing in with big lines, the flood narrative, and then the Abraham narrative, right? So there's kind of your, your structure. But Abraham now comes in and he, and he he journeys out of Ur of the Chaldees. We'll talk a little bit about that, about geography to the Holy Land. But he gets to the Holy Land. There's a famine in the Holy Land. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. So now there was a famine. So Abraham went down to Egypt. So there's your first problem, right? And not a good thing. He's going to go down to Egypt. Now remember, Genesis has been written when? Been written during the time of the Exodus. Yeah. So in the book of Genesis, to go to Egypt is not good. All right. And so Abraham's going to go to Egypt. He's going to get himself in trouble. And as as um, I can't remember, if it was Steve Wood or something. I can't remember who the, who the modern commentator said. This amigo Scott Hans says it was easier it's easier to get e- Israel out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of Israel. Well, when Abraham goes down to Egypt, he he, he takes on the Egyptian practice and he ends up taking on another wife, right? A concubine named Hagar. because why? Well, because his wife is barren and if he comes out of Egypt with, with Egypt in his heart. And rather than trusting in the Lord, he trusts in his own way to fix his problems. You see in chapter, well, when it, it, you have the promise in, to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 1. Now Abraham said, sorry, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. All right, I'm going to have some boys, right? have a big family. <laughs> but he's he's hooked up with, with, with Sarah and his things aren't working, you know, and so... He goes down to Egypt, he gets with this uh, concubine in chapter 15. The Lord kind of says to him, Abraham, testadora. The testadora is Italian for uh, hardhead. hard head. This my my nana used to say this to me. Testadora, <laughs> you the edge, yes. He showed, she said it to you, I'm shocked. So here we got chapter 15. And these and, and, and these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in the vision. Fear not. Well, why is Abraham fearing? Well, because he's like, ah, ah this is going to be a great nation. I got no action going on. Fear not, I'm the shield of your reward. But Abraham said, oh, Lord, but thou wilt give me if I continue childless in the air of my house as of uh, Damascus, for God's sake, Assyrian. And, and it, because well, why Damascus? Because because from Ur of the Chaldees they journeyed up along the fertile crescent and they came down through Syria. So through oh, Damascus, okay, right? Sure. So he picks up this, this slave. And Abraham said, uh, behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house with my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came and said, This man shall not be your heir, your own son shall be your heir. And here's the problem is that Abraham does not trust in the Lord. It's all going to come to culmination, chapter twenty-two, right? So he says, and now verse five, and he brought him outside and said, "Look toward the heavens, number the stars, if you're able to number them." Then he said, "So shall your descendants be." But look at verse twelve. Verse twelve, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. So the Lord says, "Abraham, you're you, you're going to have you're going to have a lot of children." You want to know how many you're going to have? Go walk outside and go look up at the stars. So Abraham walks outside and he looks up. What time of the day is it?
1: Middle of the day.
0: It's the middle. It's the sun's out. So he's like, I don't know, Lord. So he's got to trust totally on the word of God. Right? He can't see with his own eyes. He has no evidence for himself. And this is the struggle with Abraham. He's going to continually go back to his own strength. Right? Instead of. Trusting in the Lord gets himself into trouble, and then now he's you got chapter 16, the story of of Hagar, and then Abram's going to send him, send them away from the camp, right in chapter 21, chapter 21 verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulders along with the child, and sent her away. Right, we'll send her away. Well, I mean, you're going to send this woman with a child with a, like a piece of bread and a you know, water. This is certain death. Abraham is is saying now that I have my son gone, right? Gone. Yeah. And so look at verse 15. When the water and the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down against it on a way off about the distance of, of a bow shot. For she said, "Let me not look upon the death of the child." And and this is Abraham. From this point on, Abraham doesn't know what happens with Hagar and and, uh, Ishmael. And look at chapter 22, verse 1 now. This is the chapter we're in. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son. Because now Abraham thinks Ishmael's dead. Wow. Right? And and now God's going to say, now, he's your only son. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to listen to me finally or not going to listen to me? And this is the kind of background to what's going on here in chapter 22. Wow. that's Now, that's one background. There's another background, a geography background, which we have to get into, but you have other questions.
1: Well, no, that was going to be my next. Well, I was going to ask why Abraham needed to be put to the test, but you just answered that question. So my next question was going to be, where is this happening?
0: Yes. So so look at verse 2. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Okay, so what is the land of Moriah is the area of Jerusalem. Okay, it's another name for for that region. And you can see this a little bit clearer up here as the story ends in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, right, the place where he went up on the mountain to sacrifice his son, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Okay? We can flip very quickly to Psalm 76. Well, I had another note there to Chronicles. Let's go there. Let's go. I'm just going to flip back there very quickly. We're going to go to Second Chronicles chapter 3. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, yeah, this is good. This is helpful. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. There's Moriah for you, okay? Okay. So Moriah is another name for for Jerusalem, okay? And then the last piece of the puzzle is, is Psalm 76. Psalm 76. Psalm seventy-six, verses verse one and two, in Judah, God is known; His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, His dwelling place in Zion. Salem. Salem is the old-timey name for Yeru. Salem, Salem, Shalem, Shalom, Peace. Yeru, the Lord will provide. Okay, the Lord will provide His peace. So, so the old name for the for the mountaintop is Salem, but but Abraham tax on Yeru to the to the old name. Okay, Jerusalem happens right here in Genesis chapter twenty two, wow. verse fourteen. On the mountain, of the Lord will be provided. Yeah, verse fourteen. So Abraham called the name of the place. You see that? So Abraham names it, uh, adds this peace, Yerusalem. Same place. Why is this important, guys? because this blows us up into a much bigger picture of salvation history. And to do that, I'm going to share my screen and see if I can make this work and the odds of me to being able to do it are like, you know, we'll see, you know, we'll see. Okay. I cannot make my pen work, but I can use my mouse. So you guys can be patient with me. I'm going to be, I'll do the best I can to draw with a mouse. It's not easy to do. Okay. so. <laughs> Okay, so what you have to realize is the Holy Land. I'm going to just go ahead and draw this kind of curve here. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Yes. Um and Jerusalem is here. Yeah, the Sea of Galilee. I'm just giving you guys some bearings here, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea. Okay, good enough. What you need to know here, and for those who have been with the Institute for a long time, you would be like, I've heard this before, Father Hezekiah. But for those that are new, this might be totally a mind blower to you. So just check this out. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, we have to go um, to the casting out of Adam and Eve in verse 22. Genesis three twenty-two. Are you with me, Annie? Yep. You got it there? Genesis chapter 3, verse yep. 22. You got it? Then the Lord said, behold, man has become like one of us. I'm going to come down to verse 24. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword. Now, so what is the direction of exile? The direction of exile in the book of Genesis is toward the east, right? Because on the eastern yeah. gate, he guards the way in. Sure. Okay? Now, what you need to know at this point is that the, the ancient biblical peoples believed, you know, this is something that maybe is new to you, that the that the holy land was the original location of the Garden of Eden. That Jerusalem, the center of the whole business, was the original location of the Garden of Eden. Okay, mm-hmm. and he said, well, "Well, I never heard that. Father has guys. Well, just watch how this works." Okay, so they you are know, driven out toward the east, and this all culminates. Now you you see this again. It continues on and with the life of Cain in verse sixteen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then Cain this is a verse, chapter four, verse sixteen. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Yeah. And then eventually we're going to have man called back into communion with God in chapter 12, the story of Abraham who is called out of chapter 11, verse 28, Ur of the Chaldeans Mm -hmm. and told to return, told to come back and receive a land as an inheritance. It's very important. Because Ur of the Chaldees, if you look on a map, is out here in the desert. Yeah? Ur. When Abraham is called, he journeys. Now, he journeys like this along the fertile crescent. And he comes in like this. But he ends up in an exact western line from Ur being restored to the land of his fathers. If you want to go more into this, you can listen to our series on swords and serpents. Mm-hmm. But 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 for, for our sakes today, why is this so important? Because the mountain that Abraham comes to to sacrifice Isaac, according to this biblical geography, is none other than the original location of paradise where the tree of life was planted, to which Jesus is going to go to be crucified. Hold on to that. I'm going to come back to that during our Gospels. Now Abraham is going to go up to the very place of sacrifice, the place where Adam and Eve were meant to receive salvation. And he's going to offer his son to the, to, to the, to our heavenly father. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Now that's enough of that. If you want to go more into it, go and listen to my swords and serpents or the life of Abraham in which I go in much more detail. Okay. Annie, there's your geog- geography thing that, 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 that Abraham's movement has everything to do with the movement in and out of paradise, in and out of communion with God. He's been found as, as Abraham as a representative of humanity fallen and in an exile from, from the father. He comes all the way back to that point of salvation, that place of salvation, and who appears there? The Lord himself. And now a communion is reestablished between God and man in the life of Abraham because of his faith. Yeah, And that faith is critically important in this story.
1: So that must be why then God is sort of restating his covenant with Abraham after this, like all of that, like loss of faith with Ishmael and all of that, that you were talking about earlier. No, exactly.
0: This is an opportunity for Abraham to be restored to what he should have received in Genesis chapter 12, if he had been faithful to the Lord. Now he has to trust in God. And this trust in God is so powerful in this moment, not only because and now we have of course we have our our renaissance pictures of abraham with the with the knife coming down right and the angel holding the arm back and so forth like that but there's a wrinkle here in the text which is so beautiful that um it's it's it's, it's this is a mind blower i got to give it to you now and in and, and and that comes to us in genesis chapter 22 verse 5 verse 5 chapter 22 verse 5 which is unfortunately one of the verses that skipped in our lectionary skip around but it's critically important to this text look at verse five then abraham said to his young men as his servants right stay here that's at the base of the mountain right it's down i don't know where he's at maybe he's near jericho or where before they're going to climb the mountain right or just on the edges maybe down in the kidron valley just before he's going to go up to the top of the mountain okay uh, stay here with the with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about that.
0: Wait, who's going to come again to them? Abraham and the lad. Yeah. Now listen to what Saint Ephraim says about this text. In two things, then Abraham was victorious. That he killed his son, although he did not kill him. And that he believed that after Isaac died, he would be raised up again and would go back down with him. And Abraham was firmly convinced that he who said, "Though Isaac shall through Isaac shall your descendants be named, was not lying. Abraham believed in the resurrection. Abraham believed that his son would rise from the dead. Is right there in the verse, okay? We, I in the allowed to come back down to you. And that's how St. Ephraim, you gotta love St. Ephraim. That's beautiful, right? Wow. And so now the son takes on. And now verse six, then we go to the next verse now. Verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. So now you have Abraham's son carrying the wood the upon which he will be sacrificed. Yes, does this remind you of anything, Christians? So- Up. To the very mountain to which Jesus willingly goes to be sacrificed, to offer his sacrifice. So now Abraham and Isaac, the whole story becomes a prefigurement of the cross, a prefigurement of the sacrifice of Christ.
1: Wow. I mean, can we talk about Isaac for a second here? Yeah. I mean, wow. The, the trust that he had in his father. Well,
0: this this is another point. This, you know, this is why it's important to kind of dig at these texts and like not just read them on the surface. So again, the Renaissance pictures have little Isaac.
1: I know, they're so cute, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: he carried the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain because Abraham was too old to carry it. Isaac was a man. Which, me, which means that he willingly allowed his father to put him upon the him. wood to sacrifice him. Isaac is a willing sacrifice. Again, the story of Abraham and the parallels between this and the sacrifice of Christ are amazing and beautiful. Um, and, and again, I just point you out, if you want to go back and study that in uh, more in depth, the journey of, of faith, a study of the life of Abraham...
1: That's incredible. Um, okay, so right. I mean, obvious connections to the crucifixion.
0: Um, yes. But
1: what about the fact? So, the we got to gospel... talk about.
0: We got to talk about what actually happened here. When the when 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 the his hand is stayed. Right. He doesn't oh, actually. Yeah. He doesn't actually. Because notice what happens. Abraham's been saying all along that God's going to provide the lamb for the sacrifice, but notice, notice what what actually happens here. Verse uh, 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorn, his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. So why? Because, because the a lamb was supposed to be sacrificed upon this mountain. Yeah. And Abraham prophesied that the Lord will do it. And notice, even after this happens, he knows he has sacrificed a ram, not a lamb. And he says, God will on this mountain provide the lamb. This becomes um, uh, inspiration to God's people that, that, that God will indeed provide a lamb. When John the Baptist is saying, behold, the lamb of God, when the idea, this whole, we kind of carry baggage with us that Jesus is the lamb of Jesus is the lamb of God. The Jews looked forward. This is one of the prophecies. They looked forward to God himself providing the sacrifice that would restore the covenant between God and man. St. Ephraim, again, takes us to a whole nother level. Okay? He's, um, and, and I have to couple, I have the quote here um, that I want to share with you, but I have to couple it with uh, another quote from St. Ephraim, which I don't have in front of me, but I from memory. He says, the, the tree of life, which was in the center of the garden, was greatly saddened when it saw Adam stolen away from him. Right, it from it, yeah. So that exiled from it, and it in its sadness, it sh- it, it it withered down, it sh- it, it um sh- whatever you want to call it, okay, down into the into the ground and and disappeared, only to burst forth again on Golgotha. But now we can now we can tie this into this other insight from St. Ephraim. let somebody says, at this moment, the mountain of Moriah split or spit out the tree. And the tree spit out the ram.
1: Whoa. And in the
0: in the ram that hung in the tree, so the so the ram comes bursting out like a piece of fruit upon the tree and hangs from its horns upon the tree, hanging upon the tree on the place where the tree of, of, of life was planted. In the ram that hung in the tree and had become the sacrifice in place of Abraham's son, there might be depicted the day of him who was to hang upon the wood like a ram and was to taste death for the sake of the whole world. Dang, yeah. nice!
1: I love I chills.
0: I love That's typology.
1: Incredible,
0: Annie. We have gone long here.
1: Well, I I guess by way of transition, Father, yeah. I was wondering because I mean, obviously, you see the connections between the crucifixion and and this story. But what about the transfiguration? That's our gospel passage for this weekend. Is there a connection we can make between this and oh, the, I think the I think certainly
0: because the transfiguration is all about entrusting themselves, the disciples entrusting themselves to the Lord who is going to take them to Jerusalem and is going mm. to be sacrificed and they are to trust that he will rise again on the third day. The story of Abraham's faith and Isaac's faith and what the Lord would do is like mirrored perfectly in what Jesus is calling the apostles to In the context of the transfiguration, we can look at that in a moment. We have Psalm 116, of course. Yep. Yes. Psalm 116, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So I I think we just leave it right there because it's, it's, it's the Lord himself who will give the possibility of life. And Abraham finally has come to understand this in his life, Hmm. that no matter what transpires, no matter how difficult our life gets, no matter how hopeless your situation, Abraham, seems that you're not going to have any children, no matter how difficult it might seem, the Lord is the only one who can bestow life even in the space of death. Yeah. Um, And therefore, we walk in his ways through the darkness of this world. And during this time of the fast, during this time of, of, uh, of, um, of our Lenten journey, how much how how fitting this is to walk in the ways of the Lord while we're being attacked. I mean, I know, trust me, not only in my own life, um, in confessions that priests hear at this time. This is a time of serious spiritual attack because whenever we take the we take the faith seriously, then the evil one's going to attack. Yeah, um, we begin to see our sins more. I mean, they just can seem to rise up to the surface, and they just they're there, right? In all of these difficulties and all the hopelessness and the dead end of our sinful life, uh, we're called not to realize our own perfection, but to realize our own imperfection, and then to trust in the only one who can give us the possibility of like to walk in the ways of the Lord instead of the ways that we have made for ourselves, the ways of Hagar and Ishmael, right? But trusting in the Lord, and and, and we and like Abraham looking up in the sky in the middle of the day, we we ourselves can't see but we hear the word of the lord and we walk in his ways and and that that is the 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 total context of the of this story of the transfiguration.
1: Yeah. Well, I was just before we move to that I'm just yeah. so struck by in the the first verses of the responsorial psalm it says precious in the eyes of the lord is the death of his faithful ones which sounds so jarring at first like oh yeah he's going to rejoice mm. in our death but when you think about it the way that you just put it, like death to self, yeah. obviously this that's is, going th- to be precious. Yeah, so
0: there's, there's, you can die in your body. There's different ways of dying, right? A, right. Uh, Adam and Eve died in their heart. Their love for God died, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also now with the, with, the, with the coming of Christ, a new way in which we die. A, a way in which we say we realize our, our past life, which isn't life at all. It's mortal life. It's death life. It's mm-hmm. life which is known by that one characteristic, and that is it ends in death, right? right? Um, we realize that it is not life-giving. And then having died to ourself, we entrust ourselves totally to him, mm-hmm. totally to the one who gives us life. And this is this is a spiritual death, which leads us to the life of the resurrection. Yeah. Baptism. Yeah. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, St. Paul says.
1: Incredible. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're starting with verse 2 here. Let me know when you're there, Father.
0: Matthew, Mark, chapter 9. New Testament Catholics. Okay, verse 2. Go ahead. Let's start with verse 1. We're going to read verse 1 through 10.
1: Okay. Here we go. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his garments became glistening intensely white as no fooler on earth could bleach them and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking to Jesus and Peter said to Jesus master it is well that we are here let us make three booths one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah for he did not know what to say for they were exceedingly afraid and a cloud overshadowed them And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man should have risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. I love the end of that. It's so good. Yeah. Okay, so let's get our context first. What was happening here in Mark, and do we get any further context if we triangulate with, uh, with, with? You Matthew do. You with- do,
0: Annie. But but we were in Luke last last cycle, in which we actually covered the transfiguration in detail here with SGR. So I don't. I I think we can just we just stick with with Mark. Um, okay. because because besides we're our I went I told you Abraham's impossible. I mean, we go <laughs> on and on. So so sorry, Jesus, Lord, you got short cut a little <laughs> bit your SGR, but but I hope we covered some stuff in Abraham that was helpful to understand this text. But for us, we realize that the transfiguration is bookended by two kind of declarations, proclamations of the Lord. The first being in chapter eight, verse twenty nine. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. All right. And then Mm -hmm. I'm in chapter nine, verse. Sorry, that was chapter eight. Did I say that? Chapter eight, verse 31? And it's okay. Yeah. So, chapter nine. Verse 31. Look at that. 31 and 31. Is For he was teaching his disciples, saying, The Son of Man will be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. So there you go. There's your book. Your book ends this whole thing. The transfiguration is all about revealing to the disciples what is about to happen. Much like Abraham reveals in that, what is it, verse 5 and 6. And fall and seven reveals his faith in the resurrection. Yeah. Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem, and he's in, he's telling his disciples, his apostles, closest friends, they've got to trust in him. They have to trust in his word. But because they struggle to trust in his word, much like Abraham coming up and coming out of the tent and looking in in the in the sun, right? <laughs> it's like the sun is Jesus now, right? And he's and he's saying, listen to me. And and notice the father's words here in chapter, what is it?
1: Nine.
0: Yeah, chapter nine, verse seven. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out, This is my beloved son. Look at him. Right? No, it doesn't say look at him, even though he's 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 dazzling white. He's he's <laughs> listen to him hmm. right he's got to trust they've got to trust in the word of the lord like abraham was supposed to have trusted in the word of the lord in genesis chapter 12 and didn't in chapter 12 and following right with hagar so now the apostles are called given this opportunity to trust in the lord for what is going to happen is going to look it's going to look impossible how is it possible i'm going to go up to the top of the mountain and my son, and sacrifice my son, and then we're going to return to you. How is that possible? It's not possible, except by the ways of the Lord. And Jesus is calling his disciples and all of us to the same, this same reality, this same thing. How is it possible that I'm going to give up all of my life? How is it possible to set aside all these things which I have built up to be my empire? my who i am all the things i love in life how is it possible i set all these things aside that have become life to me and i'm going to somehow find life in something that i can't even see how is it possible that total self-denial that losing my life could possibly be the source of finding it And the only way to do that is to entrust ourselves totally to the Lord who can see what I cannot see on my own. Listen to him. Walk with him. Trust in him. And he will lead you to a place you cannot see, in which your generations will be like the stars of the sky that are uncountable, that you cannot see now, no possible way. Yeah. So the story of Abraham becomes this beautiful image for us uh, in our spiritual life to to the story of transfiguration and the story of us during Lent. Yeah, it's really cool. And and then uh, can I can I then add to that, Annie, that that not only the transfiguration is turning point in the gospel, right? All of the gospel. And you can do this in the gospel, Mark, very easily. You just I mean, we're skipping ahead right right now because it's Lent. We're going to have to go back in our study. We're going to go back to chapters two and three and four and all that. But basically, the Gospel of Mark from chapter one through chapter nine—that's that's Jesus's ministry. Jesus is going to go, and he's going to—he's going to kind of, in chapter ten, just real quick with me, he's going to kind of come come down off of transfiguration and return to Capernaum. He's going to just get, kind of pack his bags, and then he's heading to Jerusalem. Because look at chapter 11. chapter eleven, and when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Beth and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. He sent to us, I was going to the village opposite. This is the passion narrative. That's Holy Week, right? So basically chapter nine, the transfiguration is the end of Jesus's public ministry in Galilee. And now, boom, as we learn in the gospel of Luke, he turns his face to Jerusalem. The transfiguration is a turning point between the public ministry of Jesus, all his miracles, all that, and the passion of Christ.
1: So we don't have the long death march like... Like we do in Luke. In Luke.
0: (laughs) You're still scarred from that from last year.
1: I know. Oh my gosh. I can't believe how long we spent in like, I don't remember how many chapters of Luke. It was hilarious. But okay, well, let's talk about location again. This mountain, the high mountain that they go up, where is? I mean, did Jesus like deliberately choose this spot, or is this just where he happened to be? This is
0: this is Mount Tabor. This is a, one of the high mountains of the Galilee area. Uh, we'll pull up the map here, and you can see uh, the Sea of Galilee, the west western what, the west coast of the Sea of Galilee, where Capernaum is, and all that. And then as we journey inland, but toward the Mediterranean Sea, Nazareth, Cana. Mount Tabor, okay? Hmm. And this area is very beautiful. And you can see, this is the view now. You can see overlooking the, the cliff from, this is, this is a beautiful spot. Isn't this gorgeous? This um, yeah panoramic view from Nazareth where you can see Mount Tabor. From This is the spot where Jesus was going to be thrown off the cliff in, in Luke chapter four when they got mad at him, mm-hmm. okay? But now you can see Mount Tabor rising up in the Jezreel Valley and this whole area. Now, this is the view from Mount Tabor over the Jezreel Valley. Now, this is the key. This is the most important one. Why? Because this floor valley is where all the the great battles of salvation history took place. And Jesus goes up on Mount Tabor intentionally to this spot because it's following upon Genesis, uh, sorry, Mark chapter eight, verse twenty-seven and following, which I read verse twenty-nine when Peter says, "Jesus, says, who do you say men say that I am?" And Jesus says, "You are the Christ. You're the Messiah," which is which is treason, right? I mean, he, he says this publicly; he's going to get killed by the Romans. So Peter goes all the way here, and now Jesus responds to him by taking him up on this mountain from which you can see the place where the Romans marched and the, and, the, and the Egyptians marched and the Persians marched and the Greeks marched right through the Jezreel Valley here. This is the place where in the book of Judges, you can go back and read. I'll give you the passage. I'm not going to read it for you. You need not have to turn there. Just make a mark uh, to uh, to Judges chapter 4 and 5 um one of the great victories of of God's people over his over the enemies of the Lord you can go back and read that but but my point is that he goes up there to to reveal to his closest disciples that he is indeed the Messiah he is indeed the king and he's indeed going to be victorious in the bloody battle which is ahead of them and mm-hmm. so he trans he's transfigured in front of them to strengthen them for what is coming because when they come down from this mountain when they when they go into the Jezreel Valley, if you will, like the Jezreel Valley standing is more than the Jezreel Valley, right? It's the valley of this world. And he comes down from there. The battle is going to be bloody and he is going to go to the cross and he is going to be victorious over his enemies.
1: Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What's the significance of Moses and Elijah?
0: Oh, this is yeah. This is um um. You get this. Okay, I was in the book of Judges. Now I got to go back to Mark chapter chapter nine. Notice in verse four and in chapter nine verse four, Mark chapter nine verse four, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. And Peter said to them, "Masters, well that we are here." Okay, now Mark skips this little this a little point that Luke picks up. So let's go ahead and go over to Luke Luke chapter 9 you'll see that the story of the transfiguration in verses 28 and following but here we're given a detail in verse 30 Behold two men talked with him Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his
1: exodus
0: departure or in the Greek word is actually exodus is his exodus his going out right and what is Jesus's exodus is his passing over from death to life, right? Is is Jesus going to undergo his own Passover? Well, both Moses and Elijah, many commentators, even in the church fathers will say that Moses and Elijah appear as witnesses of the law and the prophets, right? Moses representing the law, Elijah's representing the prophets. And that's fine, that's good, yes. But there's something more here, and that is both Moses and Elijah experienced their own exodus, right? Moses, obviously, going out of Egypt to to Mount Sinai and eventually to the promised land although he dies short of it but nevertheless okay and Elijah himself leaving the promised land crossing through the Jordan River and ascending into heaven in the fiery chariot right oh, wow. um and uh, and so they both have their own exodus in which they leave the land of sin right the holy land for elijah becomes a plan of sin because they've they've gone completely bonkers with uh with yes, um I mean. with uh ahab and um jezebel and all these guys and the and the false prophets so so Eli- uh, elijah performs on exodus and as the father say was baptized in the jordan prepared he goes i call it a reverse baptism he goes through the jordan river backwards right leaving the promised land and then is taken up into heaven moses himself doing it the other way right uh-huh. jesus himself is now going to fulfill all of this by going to jerusalem and not just passing through the jordan river but passing through death and coming to life in the resurrection and so they both have this experience of exodus There's one other reason there's one other aspect and that is that that the jews believed that when the messiah came that both moses and elijah would appear why because both moses and elijah were taken into heaven bodily. No. Now you say, what are you talking about, Father Hezekiah? So talking, it's taken in a well, Elijah, yes. So Elijah's swept swept up into heaven bodily, right? In the fiery chariot. So there they, there was this idea that Elijah would return before the great day of the Lord. You pick this up in the prophet Malachi. I'm just turning there very quickly to give you your reference. Malachi mm-hmm. chapter. verse 5 in the rsv if you're in the new american it's chapter 3 verse 19 okay Hmm. behold i will send elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the lord so now we know from the gospels that that john the baptist fulfills this expectation of elijah nevertheless they expected elijah to return Well, Moses, in a similar way, there is an intertestamental text called the Assumption of Moses. What do you mean the Assumption of Moses? Moses died on Mount Nebo. Yeah, but when he died, there was an oral tradition, which is handed on from the Jews to the time of Christ, um, that's picked up in the epistle of Jude. So if you want to turn with me to the last epistle just before the book of Revelation, and we see in Jude, verse 8, it's only one chapter, verse 8. And in like manner, these men, are you with me, Jude? You got yep. it there? Verse yeah, 8. In like manner, these men in their dreamings defile the flesh, reject authority, and the glorious ones. But when but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, disputed over the body of Moses. So Michael, the archangel, and, the, and Satan went to battle over the body of Moses. Which is why the mm-hmm. Jews believe that Moses' body after his death was taken up into heaven only to reappear again on Mount Tabor, which with this expectation comes out another place, by the way, in, in the Gospel of John. Okay, I'll turn there real quick. John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 21, verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, you have to understand this. So, why would they, exp- why Elijah? Well, Elijah didn't die. Elijah's in heaven. He's in bodily in heaven. So yeah, are you Elijah, right? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? Who's the prophet? The prophet's Moses. Why Moses? Because of this tradition that Moses was assumed into heaven bodily after he died. And yeah. that he would return again with the coming of Messiah. And that's what happens here on Mount Table. Huh.
1: Dang. Well, you kind of answered my last question already, which was why in the world we have the Feast of the Transfiguration on August 5th. So, but I think you've kind of already answered it. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add about why we would be focusing on the Transfiguration. Yeah, because
0: it's, it's that, that hinge. Way. It's it's the gateway, right? It's the, it's the beginning of the Passion narrative, really the Transfiguration, the beginning of the Passion narrative in which through the lens of the Transfiguration, right? In the light of Christ transfigured, we can now see through the cross to the resurrection. We can see what's going to happen. And this is exactly what happens to the disciples when it says they became heavy with sleep. Does this say this here in Mark? What do we no, got No, not in Mark. I it think doesn't. it was
1: in Luke's version. In I Luke, it say says they became started, heavy too.
0: with sleep, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. It doesn't come out here. It doesn't come out here in, uh, in Luke chapter nine, but I'm going to share with you. It's a beautiful moment because in, in Luke, Chapter nine. You could read it. They said they they kind of were. They entered into this moment of the transfiguration, which our human nature, Jesus's human nature, is is becomes like glass, and his and his divinity comes shining through. And in this moment, this ecstasy, this divine sleep, and uh, comes over the apostles. And listen, what Archbishop Raya says. Likewise, on Mount T- on Transfiguration, Christ shone with such radiance that the disciples could not bear to gaze directly at him. The intensity of the radiance of his divine presence swept them away. The brilliance of his beauty absorbed all their attention. They could not endure to think of any other thing or see any other reality. They were in ecstasy. The notion of sleep as mentioned here is an admirably suited to express the disciples experience of ecstasy in the presence of Christ. The immensity of his glory attracted all the powers of their faculties Synchronize and harmonize them into unity and center them on one unique object, object, Christ in glory. The disciples were completely oblivious to everything else. There's no better expression than the word sleep to describe such an intense concentration. So very wow. beautifully. St. Gregory says, the vision of God lulls to unconsciousness every bodily motion. The soul becomes able to receive the vision in a divine wakefulness. Which is a pure and naked intuition of this loving presence. Beautiful. There's a whole wow. part of this 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 moment having to do with these booths, which we don't have time to get into, but um, but uh, we've done this before about about the feast of tabernacles in the old testament. And you can, if you want to pursue this a little bit, look at Leviticus chapter twenty three. You could also listen to a uh, great talk actually to listen to not because I gave it it was an interesting t- uh, subject matter. And that is uh, a talk I did a number of years ago on the Jubilee year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's called Jubilee of mercy, finding freedom from spiritual bondage, not a bad topic for our Lenten journey. And you might, you might think about um, going through and listening to that, in which I do believe I get into this whole tabernacles business, as well as my talk, on the transfiguration itself.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Um, particularly the transfiguration one. I was there when you gave it, and yeah, I can recommend it highly. You know, you were talking about about this as a moment to to sort of strengthen Peter, James, and John for what was going to lie ahead as Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, which I think is what our epistle is sort of bridging here because we have St. Paul in Romans chapter eight saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, we, we have to trust in the Lord in that.
0: Yeah. Let's turn there very quickly. Romans chapter eight, verse 31, Romans chapter eight, it's right after Acts of the Apostles, Romans chapter eight, verse 31 through 34, Romans chapter eight, verse 31
1: thirty four. all right here we go what then shall we say to this if god is for us who is against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will he not also give us all things with him who shall bring any charge against god's elect it is god who justifies who is to condemn it is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. And that's where it ends for the lectionary. But you know, let's continue just yeah. for a moment. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered.
0: There you go. That That kind of sums yeah. up everything we're... We're talking about here, and I think this is important to remember that everything we we're we're reading in the gospel, everything Jesus did—the transfiguration, the passion, the resurrection—Jesus did in our human nature for our human nature, so that it could remain not only for Jesus but for all of us. Yeah, listen these listen these words in, in in Saint Paul. He says, "How will he not also give us everything else along with him?" In other words, what Jesus receives, what Jesus experiences, what Jesus does. He does in our human nature for our human nature so that we who are baptized into him might live out this reality. And this is what our Lenten journey is all about. It's our opportunity to walk with Jesus to the cross. It's our opportunity to die to our old selves that we might rise again with him. As I said before, no one will rise from the dead who has not first died with Christ unless we come to, to Good Friday, unless we come to the cross of Christ and can embrace that cross. Until we can say, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Then and only then will we open our eyes to the brilliant light of the resurrection. And it will be a day not only in which we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, but our resurrection from the dead also. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and into ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.